Oh, good morning, Westridge. Good morning. <laughs> Whoa, I'm telling you. If you were here last week, I gave you an assignment. Do you remember? Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Always. This Chicago winter is making it hard for me to rejoice anytime. Just keeping it real here. Man. How long did it take me to get out here? Um, six hours. I left at uh, like two in the morning. I do it all for you. Um, so we're finishing up this uh, book of Philippians today. And uh, last week I said, I think we live in a joyless culture. Today I would say I think we live in a restless culture. Restless culture. One thing we do pretty well in this culture uh, is shop. We know how to shop. We're, we're the country that invented the mail order catalog, the shopping mall, retail therapy. We define the phrase conspicuous consumption. The Financial Times urges Americans to keep shopping in the interest of global prosperity. It's an understatement to say that we live in a consumer culture. The symbol of which may just be New York City's Manhattan Island. If you've not been there in a while, there's a phenomenon going on in Manhattan. The new high-rise condos going up there are in the 50 to $100 million range. And that's not for the building, that's for one condo. And many, if not most are second homes. There's a new global elite populating Manhattan. And the neon signs of kitschy Times Square scream, buy me, be like me, drink like me, dress like me, or be a loser. Consumer culture, you see, is designed to leave us wanting more, to keep us restless. And as a result, content is not a word many would use to describe themselves. Bored? Yes. Restless? Yes. Content? No. We're a bored consumer culture in which we actually sit and watch reality shows about swamp people, duck people, obese people, mentally challenged people, and last but not least, people who hoard the perfect avatar for a consumer culture. Do we need to be reminded again of the words of the prophet Brother Mick Jagger. I can't get no. Because I try and I try and I try. How many are there? One more. And I try. That's four tries. Still can't get me no. 
Which brings me back to the command in this last chapter of Philippians we looked at last week, which I think is, is, the, is the neon sign under which everything else in that chapter 4 falls. That command up there, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And so last week, we defined joy this way. The teacher in me says redundancy is good pedagogy. So we said Christian joy is the emotion springing from the deep down confidence that God is in perfect control. Do you remember? And we said joyful people are merciful, prayerful, grateful, peaceful, purposeful, relational. That was that first part of chapter 4. This week, as we finish out this little letter to the Philippian church, I want to add two more characteristics of joyful people. And I want to read this, basically the last half of this chapter. It's an extended passage. Stick with me on it, okay? It goes like this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry or driving out on snow-covered expressways and tollways at two in the morning, whether living in plenty or in want. I added something there because it's, it's a long passage. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, no one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. The theme is still joy here. And these last two characteristics that we add to those that we looked at last week are really critical. And that is that joyful people are content people. Now, do I have to remind you that Paul is writing this letter as a prisoner. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's likely incarcerated in some small apartment in the city of Rome. He's in isolation. He has no freedom. And yet he has the ability to express deep gratitude to this Philippian church. The word content means to be self-sufficient, satisfied, to have enough. The secret of contentment is found in our definition of joy. Let me turn it around and say it this way today. We could say joy is the patient confidence in God's provision 
which is closely related to another theological term, his providence. It's a deep down confidence in God's provision and providence. Providence means that God is orchestrating this thing we call life in order to provide for us. That He's orchestrating things. Now we can turn our lives over to His his providence and His provision, or we can try to control those things ourselves which aren't controllable. Guess where that strategy leads you? Controlling other people, controlling circumstances, controlling the weather, trying to control things that aren't controllable, can't get me no satisfaction. Paul says a remarkable thing here. He says, I've learned the secret about contentment. We don't control the seasons and opportunities of life. Sorry to break it to you. This one phrase, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty, challenges the two extremes of American Christianity. One is the prosperity gospel, which advocates if you're a good Christian, you'll automatically be rich. The second is the poverty gospel that proposes if you're a good Christian, you'll live in poverty, an austere, uh, ascetic life. The Bible teaches that it may be both, depending upon what? God's providence. Now, you, you may have a season in your life when you dine regularly at Michelin-starred restaurants. You may have Chef Darwin coming to your house every evening preparing a gourmet meal for you. Nice season. Or you may have a different season in your life when you may on occasion be forced to eat burgers consisting of various scraps of animal parts glued together and washed in ammonia sold to you by a clown. In this context, Paul's talking about food. He writes to Timothy and he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. We come into this world naked naked and broke. And we may be dressed when we go out, but we will be just as broke. Warren Buffett, going out broke. Bill Gates, yes, going out broke. The global elite living in an $80 million New York condo, broke. Remember the verse I read last week, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. From Hebrews chapter 13, you know what the verse before that says? It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be Content with what you have. The late Henry Nouwen labels this kind of contentment active waiting. Active waiting implies being fully present to the moment with the conviction that something is happening where we are and we want to be present to it. A waiting person is a patient person is a joyful person. 
to wait with openness and trust. It's an enormously radical attitude toward life that flies in the face of consumer culture. He says it's choosing to hope that something is happening for us that is far beyond our own imaginings. That's trusting in God's providence. It's giving up control over our future and letting God define our life. It's living with the conviction that God molds us in love, holds us in tenderness, and moves us away from the sources of fear in our life. That's how you can be joyful. Here's Paul's philosophy of survival. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles. You got some of those? Sometimes they don't feel so light. And sometimes they don't seem so momentary. Are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen, that's eternal. Joyful people are content people. Joyful people are also generous people. Paul ends the letter by thanking the church for their financial generosity. You can't have a conversation about joy and contentment without us talking about money. And so he talks about money. And here's the unasked question in a consumer culture versus a content culture. Can I be content enough with my financial situation so that I can choose to be a generous person? Because if I can't be generous, I can't be joyful. Period. So let's address this nefarious lie. If I just had a little more money, I'd be that much more content and I'd be that much more generous. Really? And that's like saying, if I had just a little bit more time, I'd be able to get involved in some sort of serving, serving people in need, some sort of project beyond my own business, if I just had a little bit more time. Really? Is that the way it works? Maybe it's because Chicago and Harold Ramis died this week. But I've been thinking about the film Groundhog Day. Do we know Groundhog Day? Okay. Good. If you're of a certain age, you do. In the film, Bill Murray's character actually does have all the time in the world. And he relives the same day endlessly. The film has actually been labeled one of the most philosophically significant films in American canon. It asks the most defiant, terrifying question of all. What's holding us back in life? Is it really just the clock? I'd ask the same thing about our generosity. What's keeping us from being generous? Is it really just our current income levels? Let's say, let's say you don't even believe in the Bible today, okay? Study after study has proven over the years that money has little effect on happiness, except 
at the lower end of the income scale, which means if you're at the very bottom of the income scale, not certain of where your next meal is going to come from, then sure, just a little bit more money is going to make you happy. But let's say you're doing okay. You've got a roof over your head, food on the table, regular income. Studies show that an $80 million condo in Manhattan and eating at five-star restaurants every night doesn't correlate to greater happiness. It just doesn't. If you want to meet miserable people, find someone who won a big lottery last year. They consistently live disastrous lives after that happens to them. Which also begs the question, who's really rich? H.L. Mencken defined a rich man as one who earns $100 a year more than his wife's sister. Husband. (laughs) Living in the U.S. skews our idea of wealth just a bit. Having $4,000 in wealth places you in the top half of the world's wealthy. It takes $75,000 to be in the top 10%, $753,000 to be in the top 1% of the world's wealthy. And I just read this week that the average American spends 75% of their money, 75% of their expenditures, the average American is on housing, transportation, insurance, and food. Three-fourths in four categories. And 50% of that is just on houses and cars. Well, how about generosity in America? How about charitable giving in America? The average American gives away 3.1% of their income, that's 2% less than they spend on entertainment. Unless you earn less than $10,000 a year. Those people are the most generous people in America. They give away 5.2% of their income. Unless you're the wealthiest 20%, they're the stingiest people in America. They give away 1.3% of their income to charity. The endless quest for more robs us of joy. And Christians, in this country, we've got an image problem. Makes me sad. I was reading just this week that an article that says anyone who's worked in the restaurant business will be happy to tell you that waiters always fight each other to avoid working the Sunday lunch shift. Not because they want to sleep in, but because it's a widespread belief that the post-church crowd is loud, demanding, and unwilling to tip appropriately. It goes on to say, in the food service industry, Christian is synonymous with selfish. That's a really big image problem for a group of people who should be known for their generosity. Have we, have we really deceived ourselves into believing that if our circumstances were different, if our paycheck were larger, we'd be content and generous? That's what he's talking about here. 
And the command at the top of the chapter is rejoice in the Lord always. Trust in God's provision, His providence. Practice active waiting. Tell yourself that it's not making more money that'll make you happy. It's giving more of it away. Being joyful reminds me of a prayer written by a pastor in Detroit. Which if you haven't been there in a while, that's a place that needs a lot of prayer. Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1920s, he wrote what we call today the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity, the joy, the contentment, the peace to accept the things I cannot change. I don't control the seasons and the opportunities of life. God's providence does. And the courage to change the things I can. I don't need more money or different circumstances to be content and generous. And the wisdom to know the difference. Church is not a consumer culture. The church is a content culture. So I'll echo the Apostle Paul's command in this last chapter of his letter to the Philippians. And I'll say it one more time. Rejoice in the Lord 